This is Bold Dominion, an explainer for state politics in a changing Virginia. I'm Nathan Moore. When it comes to politics, it's easy to get deep in the weeds and minutiae and horse race coverage. Which candidate has raised more money? That lawmaker said, what? What a scandal! Today, we're not doing any of that. For one thing, it's terrible political reporting. For another, today we're zooming out. And then we're zooming out again. We're zooming all the way out to how Virginia's entire state constitution is, well, constituted. The Old Dominion has a storied political history. Over the years, our state has had seven, count them seven, state constitutions. This year, July 1st, marked the 50th anniversary of Virginia's current state constitution. And this golden anniversary arrived during a critical time for both Virginia and our nation. In the Commonwealth, we're approaching state elections with outdated congressional maps and still figuring out how to draw the next ones. Meanwhile, across the nation, we're grappling with what it means to be a democratic society, how and if we can keep democracy alive and out of the hands of autocrats. Of course, all that is set to a backdrop of a global pandemic. You know, that. It gives us much to reflect on. So in today's episode, we take a close look at Virginia's state constitution. It's another opportunity to reflect on our role as citizens and what free government means to us. I remain an optimist about the American system, and I think a healthy part of it is, in Virginia at least, to use the 50th anniversary of the Virginia Constitution as an occasion to think about the fundamentals. That's A.E. Dick Howard. He's a professor of law at the University of Virginia and executive director of the commission that wrote Virginia's current state constitution back in 1971. In the second half of today's episode, he'll tell us more about his work on that constitutional commission and the provisions of that document. But first, let's hear a breakdown from Professor Howard on the Commonwealth's long constitutional history, beginning with the state constitution of 1776, which predates the U.S. Constitution. What is a state constitution? It's the document that lays down the fundamental law, rights of the people, the fundamental outline of government in a state. It's subject, of course, to the federal constitution. Federal law is supreme. So a state constitution can't do less than the federal constitution. It has to accept those limitations. But state constitutions can do more. They are much more detailed, much more specific. They cover ground that... um, the federal constitution doesn't talk about. Indeed, I would say day-to-day life in most people's uh, minds would be more nearly affected by state constitutions than by the federal document. I'd say that it's important to realize that state constitutions are periodically revised and certainly frequently amended. Uh, Virginia, for example, has had, depending on how you count them, six or seven constitutions from 1776 to the present time. To begin with 1776, what are the founding principles of that state constitution? Well, it's a striking document. Um, In fact, there are two documents when the framers in Williamsburg in May of 1776 began work. First, they wrote a Declaration of Rights. Then they, they wrote a separate document, the frame of government, the actual government of Virginia itself. And the the reason there are two documents is that it's steeped in what you might call social compact theory, the ideas of John Locke, namely that you come into society with inherent rights, inalienable rights, 
that do not depend on government. The government regulates life in various respects, but it doesn't create rights. Those rights are brought in just because you are who you are. But as far as founding principles go, I think society is created for the common benefit, for the liberty of all people. It's a very sweeping kind of declaration. And then it sets out a, n- a number of concrete guarantees of rights. Uh, it's also interesting that that early document has aspirational language. It's not just a set of concrete legal rights. There's a sense of what the values of citizenship are, the, um, what it is a citizen ought to know about founding a free society. And there's interesting language at the end of that document that says that uh, free government depends on a frequent recurrence to fundamental principles. The notion that one should constantly, as the years pass, go back and reconsider, rethink, reaffirm those rights that are set out in the founding document. I didn't realize this, but the executive branch was deliberately made weak in the 1776 Constitution. Can you explain to our listeners why that was? The revolution was underway. The colonists, now about to become members of the uh, United States, um, declaring independence, have very fresh memories of royal governors and also royal courts. So in the colonial period, the governor and the judges were uh, agents of the crown. And the nearest thing to a voice of the people in the colonial period was the was the lower house of the legislature. In Virginia, that would have been the House of Burgesses. So I think that sense that legislatures are closer to the people carried over into the 1776 Constitution. The uh, framers of the first Virginia Constitution deliberately made the legislature the the primary branch. I mean, they had a theory of separation of powers, but I think the fact was legislative supremacy, that the governor, governor, in fact, was not elected by the people. He was elected by the legislature. And the the judges had uncertain powers. It wasn't clear how much power they would have. So the the action was in the legislature. Now, it didn't take too long before people realized that legislatures could uh, mess about with your rights as well as judges or or governors. So that changed over time. Can you tell us more about the structure of the legislature laid out in the Constitution? The framers didn't really uh, equalize apportionment among different parts of the state. Um, Even though the Declaration of Rights was very progressive and forward-looking, the the frame of government in terms of uh, how you would apportion legislative seats was frankly very backward looking. They left apportionment in the uh, General Assembly in the House of Delegates and Senate pretty much as it had been under the in the colonial period. And that meant a system in favor of old Virginia, the small, older Tidewater counties. What sparked the first constitutional revision in the early 1800s? As soon as the 1776 Constitution had been adopted, uh, as time passed in the late 18th, early 19th centuries, reformers, Jefferson and many other people, said that Virginia needed to call a constitutional convention to revise the first Constitution, that it needed to be updated, uh, the franchise needed to be enlarged, malapportionment needed to be addressed, and so forth. Finally, 
1829 and 30, a convention was called to, to rewrite the Constitution. The reformers started off thinking they had a pretty good shot at um, significant reform, but as the convention wore on, uh, that error passed, and by the time the convention had concluded, the changes they had made were modest. They slightly in, enlarged the franchise. They adjusted seats in the General Assembly. The governor still didn't have that much power. So it wasn't that much of a change from the, from the outset. So it meant that if reformers wanted to carry the day, they had not yet done it in 1829 and 30. The second state constitution came 60 years after the first, or roughly so. Is there anything significant about this first reform of the constitution? Well, I think the significance of the convention of 1829 and 30 is that it was a reminder that the constitution is not static, that it is open to amendment, to change, to evolution over the years. So it's set in, in motion an ongoing process so that from time to time since 1830, we have seen further revisions. Uh, it was only 20 years before yet another convention was called in 1850-51. And by that time, the, the uh, reformers really uh, did have more uh, wind in the sails. They were able to achieve something like a white male universal suffrage. Slaves clearly were not in the, in the picture at that point. Women didn't yet have the vote. But among the white male population, it was pretty nearly universal suffrage. And that convention also, um, finally, 75 years after the revolution, that convention agreed that the governor should be elected by the people. They also began to trim the legislature sales somewhat. They began to put limits on legislative power. And that's important because... Whereas the federal constitution is a grant of power, which is to say it grants the president, the Congress, the court certain powers. The theory of a state constitution, including Virginia's, is that the legislature has all powers other than those that are denied to it by either the U.S. or the state constitution. So it's important as you look through the 19th century to realize that people began to worry more and more about whether the legislature was really getting out of bounds. So does the state constitution of 1851 carry a certain significance to it that the state constitution of 1830 didn't? One of the interesting themes that we ought to be talking about today is to consider how the constitution defines what I would call the political community, which is to say who gets to vote and who doesn't, who counts and who doesn't count. At the beginning, it was people that own property. Clearly that. It was a very limited franchise. The majority of Virginians had no voice in the government of their state. That began to change in the 19th century. After the age of Jefferson and the age of Jackson, the whole country was becoming more democratic than it had been at the outset. Um, in the early, the founders' generation, there was still more an air of aristocratic privilege by the age of Jackson, that had begun to change. So a number of states revised their constitutions in the 1820s. Um, Virginia had that convention in 1829 and 30, but it didn't really achieve as much reform as finally came about in 1850 and, and, and 51. So by, by mid-century, uh, the political community was being defined in much more generous terms than it had been in previous years. 
So I know that right now we're approaching the Civil War. Can you talk about what's going on in Virginia during this time? In constitutional terms, of course, the, the debate was about slavery. Slaveholders in Virginia and in the South generally were increasingly worried that the abolitionists might actually be able to achieve their aim. So slavery becomes the central issue in that period. And of course, it leads up finally to 1861, the firing on Fort Sumter, Abraham Lincoln's calling up of troops, and then finally secession conventions being uh, being held. And what it meant at the state level, of course, was uh, the state constitution had to be called into play. There was a curious document in 1864, Virginia Constitution, but it wasn't really adopted by or voted on by people in the larger part of Virginia. Historians and lawyers have debated over the years whether that really counts as a Virginia Constitution. The um, price of readmission to the Union was, uh, first they had to ratify the 14th Amendment, but then they had to adopt new progressive state constitutions. So the convention that was held in Richmond in 1867-68 was a, a reform convention. It had roughly 100 members, about 25 of whom were, were black. That had never happened in Virginia. This was the first time African-Americans had ever sat in a Virginia constitutional convention. So that convention set out to put into place, for example, a, the first statewide public education system in Virginia. There'd never been one before. There'd been spotty here in their schools, but nothing on a statewide basis. And that convention achieved the, or ratified the uh, enfranchisement of African-Americans. Returning to our theme of inclusiveness and defining the political community, the 1870 Constitution defined that more broadly than any constitution had done before that time. So how did it go from 1869, 1870, 30 years later, and you have 1902 that's just completely marked with white supremacy? So as time moved along, Reconstruction came to an end in 1877. Once Reconstruction was at an end, then the backsliding began. Southern states started rewriting their Reconstruction constitutions. They had a template at hand. They Mississippi in 1890, in rewriting its constitution, had used the poll tax, had used so-called understanding clauses that required that you be able to interpret the state constitution. The crosshairs were on black voters. And the delegates in Richmond in 1901-1902 made no secret of their intentions. One of the delegates said, for example, he was it was to be understood he was there to protect the interests of white people. And the delegates talked about the inherent right of, of the Anglo-Saxons to, to, to rule. Delegates adduced history and, and theology. So there was this notion that the African-Americans of Virginia were a distinctly subordinate class in every sense, socially, legally, and, and, and politically. A.E. Dick Howard is a law professor at the University of Virginia and the lead author of our state constitution. Stick around. In the second half of the episode, we'll hear more from Professor Howard about his work on the 1971 Constitutional Commission. You're listening to Bold Dominion, a state politics explainer for Changing Virginia. Visit us online at bolddominion.org. Have a friend who's trying to get into state politics? Well, tell him about this show and then subscribe. 
You can find us online at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever fine podcasts are served up. And while you're there, go ahead and leave us a five-star review. We like those. Bold Dominion is a member of the Virginia Audio Collective, online at virginiaaudio.org. Check out all the podcasts from the collective, from science to history to music to community affairs. We amplify the voices of people in our community and help them tell stories that matter. You can listen and subscribe at virginiaaudio.org. Well, earlier in this episode, Bold Dominion producer Catherine Hansen spoke with A.E. Dick Howard about Virginia's rich constitutional history leading up to the seventh and current state constitution. So where has this history brought us? How does the 1971 Constitution impact Virginians today? In the second half of this episode, Professor Howard tells us about his work as Executive Director on the Commission for Constitutional Revision and the importance of this 50th anniversary. Why did it take over 60 years for Virginia to decide to reform the state constitution of 1902? Based on the very restricted franchise, Virginia, compared to other states, had a very low percentage of people actually voting in elections. So that was a state of affairs right on into the 1950s. Things began to change after Brown versus Board in 1954, when the Supreme Court ordered desegregation of public schools. And then it really began to change in the 1960s. The Supreme Court in the early 60s decreed one person, one vote in legislative apportionment. Congress passed the Voting Rights Act of 1965, and federal law was clamped on voting practices generally. The Supreme Court struck down the poll tax. So there were a whole range of changes in federal constitutional and statutory law, which lit a fire in effect under Virginia to change the Constitution. I think it's fascinating that the person who initiated that change was Governor Mills Godwin, because Godwin is a state senator. He'd been a conservative. He'd supported massive resistance. You would not have thought of Mills Godwin as a reformer, but it was Godwin who, as governor, asked the General Assembly for authority to appoint a commission on constitutional revision, which, which he did in 1968. How was the Commission on Constitutional Revision chosen, and how were you chosen to be the executive director? Well, when that process got underway, Godwin appointed a a remarkable uh, set of men to be commissioners. Uh, Among their ranks was Lewis Powell, who later sat on the U.S. Supreme Court, Uh, Hardy Dillard, later a member of the World Court at The Hague, Uh, Oliver Hill, who was the leading civil rights attorney of that era. He'd been involved in the Brown versus Board cases. Uh, We included Colgate Darden, former UVA governor, former president of the University of Virginia. I mean, an absolutely first-class, remarkable group of people. So they had a lot of, lot of. they were the ones who went to work in the Commission on Constitutional Revision. There were 11 commissioners altogether. Albertus Harrison, a former governor, was, was chairman. And they, they set work in drafted replacing the 1902 Constitution with a modern document. Uh, I came into the picture at that point. They they needed a, someone to be their executive director, and they came to me. I just joined the law faculty. I was just a kid on the block. Uh, but I had the confidence of young professors had that, hey, you want to write a constitution? No problem. I can, I can do that. Well, I mean, 
I don't know what I thought. Maybe I was thinking it was like writing a will or a deed. You just go to the form book and copy out the provisions. Well, <laughs> a lot more to it than that. Uh, well, I signed on the job, and um, I had lawyers to help me. The, we divided the commission into five subcommittees, and we worked through the spring and summer and fall of 1968. We were under a short fuse. We were able to do the entire job in about a half a year. We reported to the governor and general assembly in, on January the 1st, 1969. Well, of course, the next step in the process was then the receiving and reviewing the report of the commission by the general assembly. The legislators could do what they please with the commission's report. I was very well, I was really impressed with the commission itself, but I was also impressed with the general assembly when they received the report. They had a sense of the of the common good. There was no partisanship. They approved of most of what the commission had done. They obviously made some adjustments, mostly mostly for the better. So finally, after the end of the 1969 session, what became the 1971 Constitution, technically it was an amendment to the old Constitution because it was a replacement. That meant it had to be approved by two sessions of the legislature with an election of the House of Delegates intervening. So what the 1969 session did had to be reaffirmed by the 1970 session. You couldn't change a word of it. So this 1970 session did that, and then um, it had to go to the people. The final step, of course, was popular referendum. Can you tell me more about the referendum campaign? Linwood Holton was governor by that time, and he asked me if I would organize and, and direct the referendum campaign. Well, now that was a real challenge because doing the drafting part and even the legislative adoption part was closer to my expertise as a constitutional lawyer. But the referendum campaign was politics, taking it to the people. I'd never worked in politics. I never worked in a campaign. I, I agreed to do it. And I decided I should do whatever one would do if you were running a campaign for statewide office. We didn't have a flesh and blood candidate. We were trying to sell a piece of paper. My principal concern was that people just wouldn't understand it, maybe not know enough about it, and if so, would simply vote no. So I took leave of absence from the law school. I went all over Virginia making talks to groups. We had a speaker's bureau so that the local Rotary Club wanted a speaker on the Constitution. We could furnish one. We had billboards and television advertising and bumper stickers and lapel pins, all the paraphernalia of a campaign, um, all paid for by private money. There was no state money involved at all. We raised <laughs> a laughable amount, about $100,000. It, it, it sufficed at that time. We had a lot of volunteer help. A lot of people pit, pitched in. And what we did was, at the state and local level, was to be sure we involved Republicans, Democrats and independents. We wanted a campaign that was a campaign across the board to show that there was no ideological basis for the Constitution. So when the time came, when election day came, we got 72% um, of the vote, which if you were running for office, you'd be thrilled with that. That would be, that'd be a landslide. Uh, so we, we put it into effect and it became effective on um, July the 1st, 1971. What are the fundamental principles and the provisions of the 1971 Constitution? Well, I think the, maybe the, the central features of that Constitution were as follows. First, 
the repudiation of white supremacy and, and, and discrimination, that the one of the foundational stones of the present Constitution is equality, the anti-discrimination principle. Secondly, I think education, that it's not enough to have access to the ballot. You want an educated populace so they can act upon, they can internalize the teachings of, of free government. The framers of the 1971 Constitution actually included um, education of the Bill of Rights. Thirdly, I think um, an accountable government that people can look to to uh, carry out the, the people's wishes. The old instrument of government was fairly clunky. There were, there were problems in, in implementation. The present Constitution is much cleaner, and it, it really um, enables accountable government. Uh, indeed, during the campaign, as I was traveling around Virginia, I said, I think one of the features of this proposed Constitution is that it brings government closer to the people. It, is, it, it uh, creates accountable government. I think that's one of the premises. Are there any changes or revisions you would make to the 1971 Constitution? Well, that's a fascinating question. I have thought about the 1971 document. Obviously, we're especially because we are at the 50th anniversary, and I can think of things that we thought had been dealt with, uh, but turned out not to work as well as one would have hoped. Uh, in particular, you have to remember that whatever the framers of a constitution think they have done, no matter what their intentions are. The courts are the ones who interpret the document. To give you another concrete example, um, the voting rights of felons. I think the commission in drafting Article 2, the franchise article of the 1971 Constitution, uh, did not loosen up sufficiently the uh, prospects for restoring voting rights to former felons. Once you've served your time and you're back in society, you've paid your debt, I think restoration of the franchise should be automatic. So that's that's a change I would make. Um, there are probably some others like that. They're concrete. The Dillon's rule, for example, the rule that says that localities only have those powers which are specifically given to that locality by the legislature. Um, I would reverse that rule, I think. Counties and cities should have all powers not specifically denied them by state law. These are adjustments. I personally, even if I thought we could rewrite the Constitution, I would not overhaul it. But I think that it ought to be studied closely by people. This is the 50th anniversary, and I was just wondering if there's anything that you've been reflecting on heavily. Well, I have indeed. I mean, I've I'd, I'd like to think I'm sufficiently honest with myself to look at this document and say, does it work? Does it do what Virginians need? Does it respond to the requirements of our generation and time? I had always felt the Constitution was a distinct break with 1902, that it repudiated white supremacy, repudiated the, and the discriminatory flavor of the turn of the 20th century, I didn't realize that the 50th anniversary would come at precisely the moment when the entire nation has been preoccupied with racial justice. The, the death of George Floyd, the emergence of Black Lives Matter, any number of ways in which 
clearly Americans are thinking more than they used to about uh, racial justice in America. And I think that I'm prepared to say that the mainstream of what the 1971 Constitution accomplishes is in line with some of this rethinking. But I think as one reflects, looks back over those several Virginia constitutions, starting with 1776, running through 1971, and through the present time, it's a chance to revisit history. It's a chance to think about what happened then and why. Uh, it's a chance to say, what went wrong? What can we repair? As well as a chance to say, well, what, what went right? There's an enormous amount of good that's very positive in Virginia's constitutional history. Virginians who are asked to think about their constitution, its predecessors, its general history, um, should be thinking about the good and the bad, what we would like to retain, what we would like to reject, what does it all mean, and what does it mean to be a citizen? Those are the sort of things that I hope people would be thinking about as we mark the, um, the 50th anniversary. A.E. Dick Howard is a professor of law at the University of Virginia. If you'd like to hear a more detailed history of Virginia's constitutions, you should really hear the full interview. We made a bonus episode. We haven't done one of these before, but Professor Howard is one of the best guests I can think of to post an entire, uncut, extended interview. You can listen to our full interview with Professor Howard online at bolddominion.org. Be sure to check it out. I want to thank Professor Howard for joining us this week. My name's Nathan Moore, and I'm the host of Bold Dominion. Thanks also to this week's producer, Catherine Hansen, who really made this show happen from soup to nuts. You can find us online at bolddominion.org. And don't forget to subscribe. It's just a click away.